I hope over the last couple of months you've been enjoying the Joseph series. Today's actually our last day in the the series of Joseph, which means that we're looking at the last chapter of Genesis together now. It's on page 57, uh, Genesis 50, and we're looking at verse 15 onwards. So Genesis 50, Joseph reassures his brothers. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, what if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? So they sent word to Joseph saying, your father left us these instructions before he died. This is what you're to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Please now forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. When the message came to him, Joseph wept. His brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good, to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. Joseph stayed in Egypt along with all his father's family. He lived 110 years and saw the third generation of Ephraim's children. Also the children of Machir, son of Manasseh, were placed at birth on Joseph's knees. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will surely come to your aid and take you up out of this land to the land he promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Joseph made his sons of Israel swear an oath and say, God will surely come to your aid. And then you must carry my bones up from this place. So Joseph died at the age of 110. And after they embalmed him, he was placed in a coffin in Egypt. Amen. Thanks, Colin. Folks, just keep that passage open before you. We'll not be going too far from Genesis 50 today. Um, Maybe as we were reading those closing verses in Genesis, you got a a feel, a sense that there's the end of an era here, uh, that it's, you know, 13 weeks for us, but uh, a lot longer in the life of Joseph and in the life of uh, the the people of God. Um, Something is, is coming to an end here. God has established this family, which he, he first started when he called Abraham and when he made his promises to him. He's established them, uh, brought them out of the, the moral malaise of uh, Canaan and brought them and established them safely in Goshen and in Egypt. We're not going to meet them now for over 300 years. It'll be over 300 years, close to 400 years before we meet these people again in the opening lines of the book of Exodus, uh, a community, a, a large group of slaves waiting for God's salvation. Uh, maybe someday we'll get a chance to, to look at those passages together. For now this morning, we're going to focus on these closing verses. Um, we're going to look actually at the last verses of chapter 49 as well as the, the ones we've just read Um, So we've spent chapters 48 and 49, I don't know if you've picked up on this, but we've mostly been at at old Jacob's deathbed uh, in both of those chapters. First of all, he blessed, if you remember in chapter 48, he blessed Joseph's two sons, Ephraim and uh, 
Manasseh. And then last week, Stephen helped us look at the, the majority of chapter 49, where Jacob went through and blessed his other sons. So here we, we find him uh, in his, his final words, end of chapter 49, verses 29 to 32. Jacob's last words, what do they do? They declare his undying commitment to God. He comes back to this idea, take me back to Canaan. I'm a Canaan man. In the opening half of chapter 14, or chapter 50, sorry, the first 14 verses, we're told there that Jacob's sons, they obeyed his instructions. They did what their dad asked him to do. Uh, they embalmed him. That's interesting. It shows that they're properly enculturated into Egypt now. This is what you do in Egypt. You embalm people. Uh, they mourn them, uh, mourn him according to Egyptian custom. And then we read that Pharaoh allows Joseph to, to make the journey north. But we're told also in verses 7 to 9 that all Pharaoh's officials accompanied him. It was a very large party. It must have looked a bit weird. So here you have this uh, dead, um, the, the death of Jacob, this hillbilly shepherd, and he's, there's an entourage taking his, his remains north to Canaan, and all the might and the pomp of Egypt are making the journey along with him. So I'm sure it, it looked a bit curious, but there's something very profound about it too. Here we have quite a large group of people making a journey out of Egypt north to Canaan. It kind of foreshadows what's going to happen in, in 400 years' time when the children of Israel, as they come to be known, Jacob's children, that make that same journey. Uh, we'd call it the Exodus as they made their way back to the land of God's promise. We're done with Jacob at that point. Jump with me for a second right to the end of chapter 50. Those verses to do with Joseph's death. We're told in verse 22 that Joseph lived out a long life in Egypt, that he had children and grandchildren, and that they were placed on his knee. In verse 24, we read Joseph's last words. He says, I'm about to die. You've got to enter into this imaginatively for a moment. It's a big moment for his family. Their security in Egypt had depended on Joseph. And here he's telling them, no, no you can't rely on that anymore. Um, I'm not going to be among you anymore as a lord in Egypt. You're about to lose your earthly provider, your earthly protector. And I'm sure they would have felt nervous about that. How's it going to go for them? They are, after all, immigrants. They're peasants. They're shepherds who are known to be despised among the Egyptian neighborhood. Joseph reminds them straight away of the promises of God. He says, I'm about to die, but God will surely come to your aid, and he'll take you up out of this land he promised and take you to the land he promised on oath to Abraham Isaac and Jacob. Those two words. But God. They're big words in the Bible. Big gospel words. 
all of your earthly security is being stripped away, says Joseph. And the human power which you have uh, been trusting in, it's about to be taken away. It's going to be taken away from you forever. But God is faithful. I have his word. I've received it from my father and his father. And now I commit it to you. Don't trust in me anymore. Trust in him. His promises must now be your hope and your expectation for the future. I'm about to die, but God. We're also told here about Joseph's last request to his brothers. He, he makes them promise that when the time comes, whenever God's people finally uh, leave Egypt and go back to the land of promise in Canaan, he wants them to bring his remains so he's different than Jacob. He, he's, not being asked, he's not asking to be buried in Canaan. He's asking that his remains finally are brought to Canaan. And by the way, when you read the story in Exodus 13, and we read about the people leaving Egypt, we discover that that's exactly what happened. They took the, the remains of Joseph with them. But for now, do you see what, see what Joseph's saying here? Following in Jacob's footsteps. His life's been very different than Jacob. Jacob lived the majority of his life in Canaan and only his last years in Egypt. Joseph has lived the majority of his life in Egypt. It's a place where after a difficult beginning, he's had unimaginable wealth and power. You could say things have gone very, very well for Joseph in Egypt. But after nearly 80 years in Egypt, Joseph remembers who he belongs to. In the end, nothing's distracted him. Nothing has deterred him from finishing well. He's his heart set on the promises of God and he longs to rest with the people of God in God's land. I don't know about you folks, I've, I've been inspired these last two or three weeks as we've looked at the end of first Jacob's life and now today Joseph's life, they seem to finish so well. They don't fizzle out. They don't go to seed. They seem to go out with a bang, with more of God's Spirit and the more hunger for him, more appetite to be with him and in his will than, than ever before. I, I like reading stuff like this and thinking about it. I'd love to believe that one day when my time comes, it would be something the same. I pray that for you too. So we've looked quite quickly at the death of these two men, Jacob and Joseph. We're going to spend our last few moments this morning looking at the part that we haven't paid any attention to, this interaction between Joseph and his brothers, verses 15 to 21. It's a story about forgiveness. But before it can be a story about forgiveness, it's a story about guilt. There's a, a debate raging in modern psychology about the, the usefulness or the helpfulness, uh, the validity of guilt 
Some people say that guilt is unnecessary and that it is harmful. It's brought about by moralistic teaching and so on. Uh, you only feel guilty because somebody has uh, brought you up or led you to think about yourself that way. Sigmund Freud uh, was very famous for first starting to take this kind of a line in thinking about the role of guilt. His views have probably influenced us all at a level that we may not appreciate. So we, whenever we hear of somebody struggling with guilt, our, our, our instinct and maybe even our practice is rather than taking seriously with that person that they, they have a, a real issue with guilt, we're more inclined to say, oh, don't worry about it. Don't be so hard on yourself. Give yourself a break. This morning when we come to the end of the Joseph story, we're going to think for a few moments about guilt. We're going to think about the reality of guilt, the results of guilt, and then its cure. First, the reality of guilt. It comes as something of a disappointment to those of us who've been following the story this last uh, 13 sermons here. When you see the brother's reaction in verse 15, their dad has died and look what happens. They're asking themselves, what if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did him? We need to remember the story so we can understand this uh, particular conclusion. Joseph has already forgiven his brothers. Do you remember what he said to them? It happened when he revealed himself to them. Do you remember he he put on a banquet for them in his house in Egypt. He revealed himself to them. You can check it out again in chapter 45. And he says to them, don't be distressed. Don't be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. It was not you who sent me here, but God. There, there's simply no doubt in the narrative that Joseph has forgiven his brothers. There'd be, there's no doubt that he's left his brother's sins in the past. But the brothers still feel guilty. 17 years, it seems, they have been living with this suppressed sense of guilt. They felt guilty because they'd done something terrible. Their sin against their brother was truly atrocious, and they knew that. And although they'd managed to, to conceal their guilt below the surface, that guilt had never been dealt with. There'd be no genuine spiritual healing. Folks, Freud is wrong. Not all guilt is misplaced. There's a place for a spiritually sensitive soul to feel the wrong that we have done. There are some things that cannot and should not be swept under the carpet. If there's muck in the wound, for it to come out, it must come out before there can be true healing. So we've thought for a second about the reality of guilt. What about its results? Unresolved guilt can affect us in all sorts of ways. I was reading a little bit about this this week, and uh, I think I, I understood some of what was being said. Sometimes when we feel guilty, it brings on a, a state of depression. Uh, 
sometimes aggression. Sometimes we slide into a sort of a, a perfectionism. We've got this, this thing that's, that's nagging us, that's getting us. So we set about trying to be perfect to prove to ourselves and other people around us that, that we really are good people after all. Sometimes we resort to self-deprecation. We talk ourselves down in the company of other people, hoping that they'll, they'll turn around and say, no, no, Christoph, you're wrong. You are a good person after all. For Joseph's brothers, their guilt resulted in fear. They lost their ability to trust. And although Joseph had forgiven them all those years ago, they come up now with a plot, and we read about it in the passage. They send a, a messenger to Joseph to pass on Jacob's deathbed plea. Now, we don't know and, and won't ever know whether Jacob ever said the stuff that his sons say that he said. But it feels a little bit like it's made up. The message from Joseph, the message for Joseph from Jacob, supposedly, I ask you to forgive the sins and wrongs they have committed in treating you so badly. When Joseph hears the message, it breaks his heart. He weeps. For 17 years, he's looked after his brothers. They've lived under his care. And after all these years of enjoying his hospitality, they still can't trust him. Folks, we've noticed before in the narrative those moments when Joseph serves as a, a type of Christ, when he, he acts in ways that remind us of Jesus. We noticed it particularly whenever he did reveal himself to his brothers, despite their violence against him, despite all the wrong that they had done him, he called them close and he embraced them. Well, it seems to me possible that this is another one of those moments where Joseph can, can put us in mind of Jesus. Surely it breaks the heart of Jesus when we don't respond to his love and receive his salvation. There, there could be people here today who have heard the, the gospel of Jesus Christ many times over many years. This wonderful news that in Jesus, God wants to forgive us. You've heard of his kindness and of his grace, but you've never responded. Maybe you're one of those people this morning. Could I encourage you to come to Jesus Christ? Let him forgive you all that you've ever done against him. Let him make you right with God. Let him be your Savior and your Lord. Could I encourage you to do that today? Folks, if the heart of Jesus breaks for those people who have never responded to him, it seems likely to me that it also breaks for the hearts, uh, his heart also breaks for those who, who have responded but still live outside of an ongoing experience of his forgiveness. Look again at these brothers. They had been forgiven. And they will have known that at one point in time, 17 years ago. They've known Jacob's or Joseph's full acceptance all these years. 
and yet they cannot trust him. I wonder, a lot of people here, a lot of us here would say that we've trusted Jesus Christ. We've asked him to forgive us our sins. We've started out on a life with him. But yet we carry burdens of guilt. We don't trust him. Don't trust him fully and finally. There are parts of our lives that we still want to manage ourselves. We've never learned to trust him with our relationships, with our work, with our health, our reputation. Is it possible that after all these years of being with Jesus, we still doubt that he wants our very best? If we doubt that, we'll have to hold back. If we doubt that he wants our best, we'll have to keep our lives for ourselves. Have we, are we learning to trust him? That he wants our very best in every part of life? Folks, whether you've been walking with Jesus for 80 years or not yet, for each one of us, if we want to bring joy to the heart of our Father God this Christmas season. Let's leave our guilt behind. Let's come to him and receive his forgiveness. We've talked about the reality of guilt, the results of guilt, and then finally, how can we be free from our guilt? A couple of years ago, I tried to play you a Deacon Blue song uh, to herald in Advent. It was one of our classic technology misfails. The video played, but you couldn't hear the lyrics. I don't know if you remember that. I, I was showing it then as an Advent song, but I, I was reminded of it again this week um, because it's, it's on the money for what we're talking about here today. In the opening lines of this song, Ricky Ross invites us to consider how we're going to deal with our guilt. Tell me once, tell me twice, how it is that we begin again. Do we start by clearing up the mess or just forgetting? The way some people try to kid, you'd think we're better off pretending just how far we can go without working out the ending. And in the chorus, he shows us the place, the only place where we can go to finally get relief from our guilt. We've got to go back, got to go back in time to Bethlehem to begin again. How do we begin again? How do we clear up the mess? It's not by forgetting or pretending. It's by confronting our own sinfulness and receiving God's forgiveness. How can we be free from guilt? Got to go back. Got to go back to Bethlehem to begin again. To the kid who became a man who died on a cross.
when the brothers finally come before Joseph, they're in, they're in a state. They've already made up their, their story that shows the fear that's in them. But he receives them warmly. And he says, don't be afraid. He doesn't ignore the problem. It's interesting. He doesn't say, forget all that. It never happened. He speaks about their ill treatment of him all those years ago when they kidnapped him, when they sold him into slavery, and he says, you intended to harm me. Fellas, I know you really did mistreat me. Your sin against me was real. I haven't forgotten it. And then, not for the first time in this passage, Joseph uses the two huge gospel words. You intended to harm me, but God meant it for good. It's awful. It was awful. But I've seen God in it. God is bigger than even your sin. God can take the worst of these circumstances and work his salvation in it. Folks, do you see here a, a final, for now in Genesis, a final beautiful picture of Jesus? He was ill-treated. The lash on his back, the thorns in his head, the spit in his cheeks, the bruises in his face, the nails in his hands, the spear in his side, the scorn of the rulers and the betrayal of his friends, the desertion of his disciples. Jesus suffered all this human sin. Friends, there is no greater sin than to hate and to kill the Son of God. And we did it. Mel Gibson was right when he directed the Passion of the Christ, when he went to the crucifixion scene, when he showed Jesus being nailed to the cross, and he put his own hands as the ones lifting the nails and driving them through the wrists of Jesus Christ. Gibson killed Jesus. And so did I. And so did you. We all intended to harm him. But God... On the cross, God was dying at the hands of sinful men, and yet God was in it all. The quite staggering truth, and I don't know if I'll ever understand this properly, is that God worked through the suffering of his Son and turned it all for good. You intended to harm me, but God meant it for good. What is being done now? The saving of many lives. The prophet Isaiah, he wrote about these things long before Jesus ever came. He said it was the will of the Lord to crush him. By his stripes, we are healed. Folks, if he can forgive us killing him, 
if he can forgive us nailing his son up, what, what, what can you possibly have done that can't be forgiven? The cross of Jesus Christ shows us that there is no sin so deep that it cannot be forgiven, that God in his grace can't transform it. Our sinfulness is the very stuff that he turns around, the very material which God uses to bring about his glorious salvation. Our guilt is real enough. We've talked about that. We're struggling with the results of it. What are we going to do with our guilt this Christmas season? We've got to go back. We've got to go back to Bethlehem to begin again. We've got to come to Jesus. Let him do the very thing that he came to do to save us from our sins. Let him say to us, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good, for what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Come to him. Let him say to you, don't be afraid. I am Jesus. Come close. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, we don't like thinking about this stuff. We live in an increasingly sinless world, a place where our guilt is not recognized as valid and where we're encouraged to sweep things under the carpet and forget and pretend. Lord, thank you that you've created a much more dangerous and beautiful world in that. A place where you speak truth and tell us that we have sinned and fallen short of your glory. And a place where you then take that truth and pour the blood of your son over it and hide it away and cover it in mercy and forgiveness and grace. Lord, we don't need to be people who walk through this life pretending to be perfect and pure and guiltless. We get something far better than that. We get to be the guilty and forgiven. The guys with the burdens lifted off our shoulders. The guys with a smile on our face. The guys whose God loves them even though he knows them. Lord, I pray for each one of us that this Advent and Christmas season, we wouldn't miss out on the big thing that Jesus came to give. Guilt-free life 
for all of us forever. Thank you so much. Amen.